0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and today I'm happy to say we have Ann Taves on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Revelatory Events, Three Case Studies of the Emergence of New Spiritual Paths. A friend of mine recommended this book to me, and I'm very, very glad that she did, because it is uh, it is a remarkable. It's a revelatory book. You know, you just knew I was going to make that pun, didn't you? The, it's really a terrific book, and Anne will explain exactly what it's about. Uh, it, it it's such a, a well designed investigation into something which is somewhat mysterious for most people, but uh, I, I think in the course of our discussion, she will uh, lay bare exactly what she's done here, and it and it is a really remarkable thing. It's really quite an achievement. So, Anne, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. Um.
0: Yeah. Can you begin by telling us what the book is about and why you wrote it?
1: I've been interested in for a long time in unusual experiences uh, that are often understood by people to be religious or spiritual. And I've written books on that, but in this book what I was really interested in figuring out is how people go from having an unusual experience to a whole movement developing um, where those experiences have played some kind of role in the beginning. And so I wanted to see how how much I could learn if I tried to unpack the development of the early stages of these three um, movements Looking at the interactions between people around these experiences in as close to real time as I could reconstruct them as a historian. And then I wanted to go on from that to see if I could explain the process.
0: Yeah, that's well stated. I think we should say for the audience, and I'm going to put some words in your mouth here and you might object, is that the the unusual events that you're talking about, I think most lay people would call miracles. That is something happened to these people. They made contact with. They claim to have made contact with uh, uh, unseen forces. Let's just put it that way. I guess philosophers would call them metaphysical entities. So, some some spiritual, to put it colloquially, entities. They 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 were communicated with by something that's beyond ordinary perception. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Except. When I started working on the book, and this is probably why I described it to you the way I did in response to your first question is I really was thinking about these as like visionary experiences or you know channeling texts, things like that and It was as I got deeper into working with each of the three groups and unpacking the process that I realized that. They not only believed in these supernatural presences, like um, in in the case of early of Mormonism, they believed in God. They believed in, and they believed that the Lord was present and that their new revelation came from the Lord. But I wasn't as clear on the fact that they felt like Joseph Smith was in, you know, frequent communication with the Lord. And beyond that, that the Lord was actually guiding the process of the emergence of the group. And it turned out that in all three cases, they felt like there was this guiding presence that they were interacting with, that was bringing forth their group, and that they were not doing this just on their own volition. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, again, that's very well stated. So let's talk about what the three cases are. Can you tell us, in particular, what cases you dealt with?
1: Sure. Yeah, I just mentioned um, Mormonism. So uh, the first case uh, was obviously taken from the 19th century. And so it was uh, structured around Joseph Smith and the people that he interacted with, mostly from his family, but a few other people in terms of bringing forth Um, a new church a restored church and as they would put it translating the new spiritual text the book of Mormon new revelation the second case uh, was Alcoholics Anonymous which um, a lot of people don't think of in terms of uh, revelatory events Um, but it turns out that Uh, In early AA, there was also very much of a sense of being guided by a presence with a capital P. And uh, Bill Wilson had a lot of spiritual experiences that were um, including a transformative personal experience that was important in terms of the emergence of the movement. But because of the nature of the movement, um, it got treated very differently than Joseph Smith's experiences uh did in terms of the emergence of Mormonism. And the third case was um that of Helen Schuckman and her collaborators. Helen Shookman uh scribed, or that's her word, or in more popular terminology, channeled, um, a new spiritual text called A Course in Miracles, which gave rise to a variety of informal or unofficial study groups that are now present all over the world. So that's a relatively recent movement. It began, um, in the, in the seventies, the scribing started in the sixties, but, um, it's been translated. I think it's into 25 different languages and, and several million copies have been sold. So, all three movements gave rise to a spiritual text, um, each of which has been translated into many different languages and um, millions of copies sold so in that sense, all three of the groups um, have become global phenomena, although they're you know they 've existed for different lengths of time mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I was very interested. Uh in the choice of the term spiritual paths, because these are different f- phenomena. I mean, Mormonism is a religion. It is a, a kind of uh, it's a kind of Protestantism, I think I would call it as a as a Lutheran myself. It's a kind of Protestantism, I guess. And well, um,
1: okay, well, maybe I'm actually wrong, they they right? they would say that they're they consider themselves Christians, but they wouldn't see themselves as a subset of Protestantism. So they would see themselves as another branch, like Catholics, Protestants, Mormons.
0: Well, my apologies to them. I, so, so, yeah. So, an, an AA, it's a recovery program. Uh, I, and, and I know I know it very well because I've been. Uh, I was hesitate to say I'm a member of AA, but I, I've been in recovery for 15 years. I don't know if anybody's a member of AA because it is it is, it is so anarchic in a, in a weird sort of way. And then. Um, Course in Miracles is it's almost a kind of self study
1: entity. I don't, right. I don't know. And, and it's really a kind of network of students um, without a formal organization, other than the foundation uh, for Inner Peace, which publishes the course and does, oversees the translations. Um, but it has a very loose structure. AA is certainly not church like but it does have a definite structure um grounded in uh the you know the the group meetings
0: right and the 12 traditions yeah exactly yeah
1: yeah um but you're absolutely right um you know then mormonism is a restored church i mean claiming to be how the church was supposed to be from the outset if it hadn't you know gotten off course um, spiritual yeah, path, so, though, yeah. So, what is a right, spiritual path? Yeah. yeah. So, back to the spiritual path thing. I chose that very deliberately. Um, the the more common thing to be that's usually discussed within sociology of religion or within religious studies is new spiritual movements, but I or new religious movements. Excuse me. But I wanted to have a title that would work for all three groups in terms of their self-understanding. And I didn't want to, in, in other words, I didn't want to impose my definitions on the groups and neither AA nor A Course in Miracles considers itself a religion. So new religious movements couldn't, could, I couldn't use that. So my next thought was new spiritual movements. And that would have worked for AA, I think. But the surviving member of the small group that was involved in the initial stages of the Course in Miracles told me, "No way, the Course is not about a move. It's not a movement." <laughs> so, <laughs> in the end, it was like, "Okay, how about paths?" And she was happy with that. And I thought it it worked for the others as well. So that's why I decided on that.
0: Yeah, no, I understand. That's good. No, it's a. Uh... Yeah, you ask any two or three or five members of AA what AA is, and you're going to get a lot of blank stares, really, or maybe an argument even. So, or as or as somebody, I think I asked that question once to an old timer a long time ago, and he just looked at me and said, "We don't do that."
1: <laughs> On the other hand, if you look at the twelve steps, you know. The word spiritual is in there.
0: Oh, yeah, I would. I don't have and, any problem with spiritual path. I mean, I, I, I'm somebody that uh, yeah, I was, I was raised as a, as as a, a Christian, kind of and so I'm, I'm sort of familiar with these things and And tending the spirit is something Christians do. So I don't have any problem with this at all. But I, I think in, in the case of AA, when people try to pin it down, everybody gets a little bit uncomfortable. But I think it's a fine analytic a bucket to put AA in. And I I don't think AA's really care one way or another. They're more interested in getting clean and living a sober life than definitions like we might be as academics. Um, yeah. They, they think this is just kind of irrelevant <laughs> and they might, right, they, they right. might not be wrong. Um, so uh, I, yeah. I want to focus on Wilson because uh, you know, the, the yeah. three cases are terrific and I really encourage people to go out and read the book and, and read about them. And I learned a ton, but I want to focus on Wilson because I know most about it and I'm most interested in hearing what you have to say about it. Can you tell us about uh, Wilson's path to his experience, that is his supernatural experience, and uh, the way in which he talked about it, because this is something you pay a lot of attention to, I'm sorry to go on, but he changed his story quite a bit as the movement was developing. So I'm just going to let you take it from there.
1: What I needed to do to reconstruct the emergence of AA in as close to real time as I could was to try to get to, was to get back to the earliest accounts that I could um of what happened to him in his own transformative process so one of the things that I did was look for the earliest accounts that I could find of the uh Experience he had in Towns Hospital, which sometimes AAs refer to it as his white light experience, uh, because in the account of it, which he gives in Bill's story in the Big Book, um, he ref- you know there's reference to the experience of of light, um, but that account, his Bill's story version, he uh, he wrote in the first draft probably in 1938 but the experience itself occurred in 1934 and then after it was published in the big book in uh 1939 he would recount his story to AAs and and so um how he did that how he told his story to AAs also changed over time, so there's a way he told it in the '40s and a way he told it in the '50s. And so what I had to do was line up all these different accounts and all the different you know layers of evidence that I had for how he told his story to, to begin to map out how it was changing over time.
0: Mm-hmm. So can you describe the town's experience a little bit and, 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 and his experience immediately prior to that? because this is where he has this uh, a a's uh, I don't know the people that I the meetings that I go to this is always called the burning bush experience <laughs> maybe that's just the new england thing i don't know but they they always talk about this like miraculous thing that happened to him in town's hospital go ahead
1: yeah well um the way the story goes um in the big book well there's there's a lot. Yeah, there's a It's complicated.
0: It is. It's complicated. Yeah, as you point out right. in the book, it's complicated. Go ahead.
1: But one of the things that you, that you do learn early on is that he had an experience um, during World War I uh, where he was at Winchester Cathedral, and it's very truncated in the in Bill's story in the big book. You just get this reference to him looking at a tombstone and then it goes into the sort of traditional downhill slope of the AA narrative where he talks about uh, drinking more and more and getting more and more out of control. And till finally he's visited by his friend, Ebby T., Um, where they have this famous conversation over the dining room or the kitchen table um, in Bill and Lois's house. And Abby tells Bill about his own, um, about getting religion and convinces Bill to go check it out. And they go to Calvary Chapel. Um, And... Yet Bill does drink again and is, oh, and we also learn that he's been admitted to Towns Hospital, which has a, which was a treatment place for alcoholics. And we learn that he's been there before. He's readmitted again after the conversation with Abby. But it's in that context that he has this transformative experience uh, where he sees feels as if he's lifted up as if on a mountaintop and feels this wind blowing through him and this feeling of freedom. And after that, well, he feels like he's been transformed, but he's very uncertain about what's happened. He calls for his doctor, Dr. Silkworth and asks him, you know, if he's going crazy, what's happened to him. And Dr. Silkworth looks at him and says, oh, I think, um, oh, I can't quote this, but he, you know, he says, something obviously good has happened to you. You should go with it. And Lois looks at him uh, shortly thereafter and can see that he's changed just by looking at his face. And this then is uh, the end of his drinking.
0: And, and he, this is in 1934
1: yeah that's when it actually wow. happened
0: but does he are there any contemporaneous documents does he he so he talks to Silkworth, he talks to Lois, he obviously talks to Ebby before that but is there, is there anything written down from nineteen thirty four to nineteen thirty
1: eight Yeah, yeah, well, that's what I really wanted to have, and I also <laughs> you wanted everybody else <laughs> uh, right <And> I also <laughs> wanted sources from whatever happened at Winchester Cathedral because we can go back to that. But anyway, I went to uh, Stepping Stones, the archive uh, at, you know, Bill and Lois's house and spent all this time looking to see what more I could find. And in terms of Winchester Cathedral, there are letters between Bill and Lois all around that, including the one that says that he's about to go to Winchester Cathedral. And then the one describing his time at Winchester Cathedral has gone missing. So that was pretty disappointing. Um, In terms of 1934, we have some letters. So we have letters from Bill. uh, I'm forgetting the names right now, but... um, we have a couple letters to his mother, and we have a couple letters to uh, somebody that he's met at Towns Hospital, so another alcoholic. And we also have Lois's, a copy of Lois's testimony that she was going to give um, or that she'd prepared to give at an Oxford group meeting, which were these sort of spiritual discernment meetings um, for guidance. That the um, Oxford group members, those were the, that's who was running Calvary Chapel, where Bill had gone and where Abby had gone. So we have Lois's testimony for that. Um, But that's about it. So those sources make it absolutely clear that something had happened to him at Towns Hospital, that he had gotten religion. But I mean that's almost a quote. But there's um, no description of the experience itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and he early. Lois, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was just going to say it's also clear from Lois's testimony or her what she was going to say at the at the meeting that she it supports the idea that she saw this change in his demeanor when she looked at him, that she recognized this, um, that something had happened. So again, it's what, what we would say circumstantial evidence, but again, the content of the experience isn't there.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is contemporaneous evidence. It's in 34. Is that right?
1: 34, it, well, since um, the experience itself, he was in towns in the beginning of December.
0: Yeah, 34, so,
1: 35. Um, yeah, so it's early 35 because he goes to um, Akron in uh, May. So this is evidence before he goes to Akron and before he meets Dr. Bob.
0: Mm-hmm. So he has this spiritual transformation. Uh, and then it, it comes time to write the big book in 38. This is after Dr. Bob and so on and so forth. And then, you know, he starts to think about uh, the way in which he's going to pass this message. And it's at that point that things begin to change a little bit. Can you talk about that? He begins to become, mm, i you know, I, I hesitate to use the word calculating, but he's interested in the development of the group and not just his own story.
1: Exactly. And there are two um earlier versions, not dated um, but or, or not dated very precisely, but probably from nineteen thirty eight uh, that are you know earlier drafts of bill's story and there's one that is really long and not you know, very well ordered it. So it struck it. I assumed that that was the earliest version. And then there's one, um, that's getting closer to the published version. So it's more ordered. Um, but it's clear both from the way that he shapes the narrative shapes his story and the exchanges between him and Dr. Bob that they're actively thinking about telling their own and you know helping others in AA at this early stage to tell their stories in the way that will be most helpful to other alcoholics so yeah they're they're telling the story um Not to be, I mean, the point isn't that it's untruthful. I mean, you can tell stories in a lot of different ways. Um, But AA does develop a story pattern that is, you know, around the theme of what it was like, what happened, and how things are now. Mm That is really, you know, was really emerging in that context when they were trying to figure out how to tell the stories for the big book. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, this was Bill's experience in 34. He did have this burning bush, white light spiritual experience, but, and he does talk about it in the big book in Bill's story, but uh, there's a footnote. <laughs> I'm sure you know about this. And essentially, the footnote in the big book says not everybody's going to have something like this. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, but that footnote. Are you thinking literally of the appendix?
0: Yeah. It's they it's the footnote, and then that refers you to the appendix. Yeah. On spiritual experiences. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's actually that's part of the developmental story because that footnote and that appendix were not in the first printing. Yeah. So that comes, I think it was 1941. So it's like two years later. And it's because even though other people didn't necessarily have this kind of sudden dramatic transformation that Bill did, people still tended to feel like maybe the implication was that they should and that they wouldn't recover if they didn't. And, you know, that's, that's often something that you see with, I want to say new religious movements more generally, but you know, the, the kind of founder effect that, you know, you need to experience it like the originator did. And so there was a very, I mean, they, they, Much of the 40s, I would say, was devoted to Bill making clear that people didn't have have to have an experience like he did in order to recover mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: well you can if I could just uh, say a couple of things because I, I know a little bit about this I mean there were certain pressures on on Wilson and the early the, the founders of the movement, one of them was from they were very worried about what the what there were lots of Catholics involved, and they were very worried about what the church would say if they talked about the movement in religious terms. but Wilson was also very concerned with and I think everybody was very concerned with the emergence of a leader in the group because they had decided on this kind of amorphous autochthonous structure. So Wilson, he couldn't be a messiah-like figure, and so his own transformation couldn't stand for the transformation of everyone in the group. And and then there was the sort of, and this really comes out very clearly, and kind of oddly in the big book, there's an entire section, the second section of the book, most people will know, is uh, addressed at agnostics, (laughs) people who just don't, really just don't believe in God. And he was very worried about these people because there were a lot of them and he was one of them at one time. And so he has all these pressures on him about how to tell his story.
1: Right. And... I mean, you're, re- you're raising a, a really important point, and this is part of why I didn't say the book was about new religious movements.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. But I, I guess one thing I want to get to is, uh, if I understand your book correctly, Bill Wilson, until the day he died, believed that he had essentially been touched by God or some spiritual entity. That is somewhat we might call, in lay terms, a supernatural entity that guided him through this process. He very much believed that there was another dimension. And he had been touched by it.
1: Yeah. But maybe before we go there, can I just stress a few things about your last point? Because I think it was really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Please go ahead. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, part of the reason that scholars of religion don't typically study Alcoholics Anonymous is because it is so adamant that it is not a religion, and it is not a new <laughs> religious movement and you're you are highlighting the reason why that's so crucial because if it is a new religion if it is a new religious movement if bill got new revelation if if he was some kind of prophet or founder figure right then it would automatically be out of bounds for anyone who belongs to an, a tradition that thinks that it is the true tradition to belong to a, or to join AA. So that was part of the issue with the Catholic Church, but it would be an issue with any path that thinks that it is, you know, an exclusive path. And so he AA had to make the case that they were just this generic spiritual path, and they were compatible with any religion or no religion. And and I think that's part of the kind of brilliance of the movement is that they figured out how to position themselves in that way. And in general, we're recognized that way. I mean, we're accepted as okay by the Catholic Church. I mean, there's some who still look to its Protestant origins and would argue that it's still too Christian or too Protestant. Um, but there are so many different retellings or reframings of the 12 steps according to, you know, Vedanta and Native American spirituality and um, <laughs> Buddhism it's true. and, you know. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. That is the, uh, I don't know what word to use here, but they did do a very, very good job of accommodating all of the different religio-political interests that were involved, and also intellectual interests. They did a wonderful job of that, and they kept their concentration on helping alcoholics regardless of their denomination, creed, kind, sex, whatever it was. They were really focused on that, so they were I guess in the case of Wilson, he was willing to – I don't know if changing his story is the right way to put it, but he was willing to adapt it or tell it in such a way that essentially downplayed what were the fundamentally – I can only call them religious aspects of it, because he had a kind of revelation. I I, I don't know what else you can call the town's hospital experience. He he was touched by – he would say God – I think I don't I, well maybe I'm wrong. I think he would say God.
1: Yeah. Well what we're getting at here is this tension um within AA and that I clearly was a huge tension within Bill psychologically especially during the 40s and as you probably know he battled with depression for much of his life and um uh there's a book i'm forgetting the author right now i'm sorry but um it's titled something like um bill wilson and mr aa i mean it's it's talking about this the the split between bill as aa figurehead and bill wilson as individual person and for the sake of aa he not only had to downplay his own personal experience during the, uh, especially, I mean, during the forties, he referred back to his sudden experience, the white light experience as a hot flash for heaven's sakes in his telling of his story during the, um, during the forties, which was a way to minimize it and kind of make jokes about it. Um, and he also needed, I mean, to articulate the 12 steps and 12 traditions in this very generic stripped down way. Um, At the same time, like you're saying, he had all these specific kinds of experiences. And part of a lot of people in AA, including some AA historians, haven't been able to make a lot of sense of some of Bill's different personal experiences and explorations. Because he did a lot of really interesting stuff that I think. AAs that are historically conscious know something about but also seemed a little bit embarrassing I think to <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I I know, I know just I know just what you're referring to here because he does at least in your telling and I think it's accurate. He does come off as a kind of seeker and mystic. He he never he never gives up the search for this other this thing that happened to him in towns.
1: Right. And it turns out that um he's been had a sense of connection to this presence with a capital P from the time, from the, uh, the time when he was in world war one and the Winchester cathedral story, because part of what you can tell from the earlier versions is that he cut that back. So it looked like his first encounter with the presence with a capital P was at town's hospital. But it clearly wasn't in his longer in, in his more extensive telling and this also comes out in his autobiography which he um, dictated in the 50s but again didn't intend for publication um, and was pub- published posthumously so he's had this ex- these experiences of presence starting r- around the time of World War one again with probably with Abby and, or he recalls that experience with Abby and then the experience in Towns Hospital. In Towns Hospital, he feels like he has, as he talks about it later, contacted or or gained entree into another realm, another reality to, you know, this kind of mystical presence, as you're saying. And then you're right. He keeps searching for that. And he can, he it looks like he takes up that search, um, not only with Lois but with uh, uh, Bob, Dr. Bob, and um, I'm blanking out on her name,
0: Bob's wife. I can't remember. I'm sorry, I
1: don't his remember his wife. Yeah, okay, well. It looks like in the context of Oxford group practices about guidance, that they're translating the kind of guidance, you know, by Jesus that some experientially oriented Protestants like in the Oxford group would have been interested in, they're they're kind of blurring the boundaries between that and spiritualist practices of being in touch with spirits. And so, um, the four of them are all apparently start exploring some of that, that first summer when, um, Bill is staying with the Smiths and, then when they get their first house, stepping stones, they have a room right. that they call the spook
0: yeah. room. The language is great, though, because it's just so telegraphically American. The <laughs> spook room, you know, that's where we talked about. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right. Well, and you can see that they've got a sense of humor yeah, about do. it. And yeah, they came they at do. it with a sense of humor. and. and- Then they keep records of the seances that they hold in the spook room in a spirit book, uh, in the spook book that is still at, I mean, in the archives at Stepping Stones. And the co-founder of Al-Anon with Lois is part of this circle. So it's like the (laughs) leadership of both AA and Al-Anon are involved in this mm-hmm, spiritualist mm-hmm. stuff. And Bill is getting guidance from these spirits about his yeah. vocation, yeah.
0: which I thought was fantastic. Well, it is fantastic, but it's kind of consistent with Bill. I mean, he had this amazing experience, uh, but he, well, he had one at the Winchester Cathedral, but then he has this experience in Towns Hospital. And, you know, he found a movement. I'd I'd be I'd begin to think that maybe I was a little bit special too. <laughs> yeah, 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 But he was a very humble Except guy, you know. Of, he didn't want he, you know. He, yeah, go ahead.
1: But he keeps being deflated about this. I mean, he keeps he keeps raining that in, which to me, again, is part of the strength of AA that he he. You know, it didn't go to his head.
0: Well, that's what he called the whole program, ego deflation in depth.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
0: that's the expression he uses, ego yeah. deflation in depth. It doesn't really get any deeper than that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, and and he has a a Catholic a Jesuit who is his spiritual director during um kind of like his sponsor during the 40s and 50s. Uh, Father Dowling. And they're talking about this stuff and discussing, you know, whether or not Catholics believe in discarnate spirits and how these are different from the saints that are in heaven and how praying to a saint is like or unlike contacting a spirit through a seance. And Bill is arguing with Father Dowling saying, you know, I think there's connections here, and Father Dowling is a little bit uncomfortable with this.
0: No, yeah, I imagine he is. Yeah, I imagine he is. But you know, as I say, Bill was—he was a very—he—he was a—he very, he was, was a strange combination, a typical alcoholic combination of an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I mean, he—he he thought that he had been touched but he knew that he wasn't any different than anybody else. <laughs> I, you know, that's, that's all of us. I don't know if you've ever been to any meetings, but that's, that's what we say about alcoholics, is that we all think we're very, very special, but then we all admit that we're really not special at all.
1: <laughs> well, you know, and, and I think even without going to a meeting, um, many of us have to come to terms with um that yeah, same realization right. yeah no i'm an <laughs>
0: i'm absolutely in agreement about that yes exactly and you know he's a, such a fascinating character because he's a he really was a, a restless spirit, and he was he was very curious and very interested, and obviously devoted to the well-being of other people like himself. And you know, he's a person of great enthusiasms. He really goes after things like this whole spook room, and then he, we haven't talked about the LSD thing. Um, but right, he, right. He, he, you know, he really was not about to give up, and uh, in that way, he's just a remark I think he's just a remarkable person. Um you don't you don't meet people like that very often. I just that's my impression.
1: Right. And I think that there's wait, maybe one more thing to add to that is that he was well connected to uh I mean he knew Gerald Heard and Aldous Huxley um who were key figures in terms of developing what's called the perennial philosophy, the the idea that, you know, there's this mystical core to all religions. And they shared a kind of mystical worldview. And and there's a sense in which AA fits pretty nicely into that as, again, a very stripped down version. But it has a kind of pass it perennialism in its claim that it's compatible. I mean, that it's a spiritual path that's compatible with all these traditions or none. True enough.
0: True enough. Well, uh, and we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. Let me ask our traditional final question on the new books network. And that is, what are you working on now?
1: Oh, i got a bunch of projects in, uh, in uh, process right now. One of them is, um, a little book on explanation that I'm co-authoring with Egil asprom We're trying to help scholars in the humanities get over their fear of explaining things. And we're trying to argue that um, we can describe things really carefully. And then we can try and explain them in the sort of naturalistic terms that I used in revelatory events to try to explain these guiding presences that helped all these movements to emerge in more naturalistic or scientific terms.
0: Well, that sounds very interesting, and I hope you'll come back on the show to talk about that when you're done.
1: Sure, that'd be
0: Absolutely. Well, let me tell our listeners that we've been talking to Ann Taves today about her book, Revelatory Events, Three Case Studies of the Emergence of New Spiritual Paths. I highly recommend that you go out and get this book and read it. I thought it was really wonderful. And thank you for being on the show.
1: You're welcome. I enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.